everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, this is episode 74, I believe, of the podcast, 73, 74, somewhere around there. Um, I never remember what episode number it is. Uh, it's a failing mine. But anyway, point being, we're not a uh, very new podcast anymore, but uh, for those of you just tuning in for the first time, uh, basically, what we try to do on the podcast here is uh, I bring on an author to discuss a book of theirs that's been uh, newly published or recently published, uh, something uh, we think that you guys out there would like to hear a conversation on, and then hopefully at the end of the podcast, or even in the middle of the podcast, if you uh, get your druthers about you, uh, you go out and purchase the book for yourself and uh, give it a read. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show, and also by sharing with your friends, as that's the best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Dr. Bruce Gilley, and uh, Dr. Gilley is a professor of political science at Portland State University and a member of the board of the National Association of Scholars. Uh, He is the author of The Right to Rule, How States Win and Lose Legitimacy, uh, The Nature of Asian Politics, uh, Tiger on the Brink, Jiang Zemin and China's New Elite, and China's Democratic Future, How It Will Happen and Where It Will Lead. Lastly, he is the author of The Last Imperialist, Sir Alan Burns' Epic Defense of the British Empire, uh, which was published late last year by Regnery Gateway and is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Dr. Gilly, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Tim. Uh, No problem. Um, So your book had a pretty interesting process of gestation. There was lots of uh, controversy on it before it got published, and I guess it all starts with the article you had published in uh, in an academic journal, uh, Third World Quarterly, uh, back in 2017, I believe, which was uh, called the, the Case for Colonialism. Uh, this was an article that went through uh, double-blind peer review before it was published, and then it was published, Everything was fine, and then all of a sudden it uh, generated something of a uh, uh, something of a poop storm, <laughs> for lack of a better word, including uh, you know threats of violence and death threats uh, on you and and others. So um, so tell us about uh, uh, the controversy behind uh, that that article, the case for colonialism, what what it, what it was about, and and what it meant for uh, the publication of this book, uh, because it was um, this book was supposed to be a part of a series, um, not all by you, but a, a, a series uh, by many different authors um, on colonialism that got sort of abruptly uh, canceled after a, a petition. Uh, campaign so uh so yeah so tell us about the uh the article and how it led to the book and how um (laughs) the whole uh the whole controversy with the book and how it you know the long road to to getting published it's a a long it's a longer road than that actually if i think about it because i mean it kind of goes back to my grad school days when you know, I would sit in these seminars and people would be uh, looking at kind of comparative political systems around the world and different outcomes and, you know, failed states and not failed states and successful development and unsuccessful development. And, and uh, you know, every time someone brought up a, an econometric model or something, they'd always have a, a, a kind of a, a variable for whether or not it was a former British colony. Um, and the reason for that was all the former British colonies did better than other third world countries. And it was just kind of assumed, you know, in the academic world that that was true. But 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 nonetheless, the the other assumption that was also just assumed to be true was that colonialism was evil. And I always remember just sitting there thinking, like, is anyone pointing out the obvious contradiction between we know empirically that being a colony was a good thing (laughs) by and large, and yet the dominant rhetoric, indeed the hermetically sealed rhetoric in the academy, was that colonialism was evil. I mean, does anyone ever try and like link those two? But of course, as a young academic, you don't want to stick your neck out. So it wasn't until I had achieved tenure and was about to be full professor, so there's you know nowhere nowhere to go after that, um, that I started coming back to this question of colonialism and thinking, you know, I'm a I'm a political scientist, 
someone has to call out the nonsense that is heard about colonialism because we know in the empirical side that colonialism brought a tremendous amount of benefits for these places. And if anything, the problem was it was terminated too soon. Um, and the case for colonialism was in some ways just my summary of that argument, mm -hmm. um, drawing upon empirical lessons, drawing upon uh, testimonies from people in the former colonies, which is the thing that really, I think, bothered the critics was that I was actually citing brown and black people saying this. Um, and most of the people who thought colonialism was evil were white liberals sitting in Western universities. So um, that article did cause a tremendous uh, wrenching of anger, uh, two petitions, maybe 20,000 signatures, and eventually death threats to the journal itself, which led to me assenting to them withdrawing it really in, in the interest of the physical safety of the staff there in London. Yeah. And then so uh, the book was originally uh, supposed to be um, supposed to be published by uh, Lexington Books, I believe. Right? They were the ones that were yes. supposed to do the the whole series. And then was the was the series canceled because of the uproar over the article? No, or? no, because the, the the book by that time was much later. So the article yeah. the article basically was withdrawn, republished in Academic Questions, which yeah, was NAS, yeah. yeah. A house journal of the National Association of Scholars, on whose board I sit, um, and you know, is the most widely read article in the history of the academic questions. It's also, funnily enough, one of the most widely read articles in the history of the Third World Quarterly, even though you can't actually <laughs> read it in the Third World Quarterly. But yeah, sure. but the but the publishers keep putting the withdrawal notice up because at least it generates the clicks. Sure. Which, which generates the apparent reads, but you're not actually reading the article. You're reading the withdrawal notice saying that the, the mobs caused death threats. So it's kind of comical. And and now the Third World Quarterly, having been completely ransacked by the Wokes, is allowing their own authors to cite my withdrawn article again um, to boost the citations for their journal. But it's the, it's the article that they themselves had to withdraw because their own Wokes, who now control the journal, uh, insisted it was unacceptable. So it's this kind of Alice in Wonderland world of of the woke left. Um, yeah. So the book then, which was in some ways what I was planning the article to kind of help me work through, was just a biography of a former British colonial official who I thought had been neglected and had been very important in late colonial time, uh, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, named Sir Alan Burns. Mm -hmm. And... Um, it was signed with Lexington Books, which is kind of the acad more academic imprint of Ro uh, Roman and Littlefield publishers. And uh, and then I actually was going to put it as part of a series called Problems of Anti-Colonialism, which was going to bring together authors writing on the mm -hmm. many problems that anti-colonialism has caused in the third world and in the West, for that matter. And then another petition <laughs> arose just before publication from a uh, Maoist Marxist-Leninist, self-described Maoist Marxist-Leninist philosopher in Toronto, which then got another mob going, um, and Roman and Littlefield caved uh, disgracefully, and all the documentation of that is on my website, but they basically caved. Uh, of course, protesting the whole way that it had nothing to do with freedom and academic freedom, but, but you know, academic quality. And they suddenly realized that my scholarship was shoddy and not up to, to their very high standards. Um, at what point at that point, it was then picked up by Regnery, uh, which uh, really is not the more appropriate place because they are in some ways there uh, to stand up to these kind of mobs right. and um, came out last year and uh, yeah, has been has been doing great. Do the. Uh... Is there any plans to resuscitate at, at Regnery the the whole problems with anti-colonialism series, or is that just pretty much gone by the wayside because it's more of an academic? Yeah, uh, it was. It would have been more of an academic one. We we may come back to something like that. I mean, there's clearly a, a crying need for a a a um a place where scholars who are critical of the decolonized movement, critical of the sort of mindless revolutionary anti-colonialism that destroyed so many millions and millions of lives in the third world in the 60s and 70s uh, can can have a place to write. Um, but, you know, once once taken down, uh, it makes you a bit gun shy to go back um, unless unless one were to have like a conservative publisher who you knew was, would stand up to that. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. OK. All right. Well, let's get to the. Uh 
book itself, which is really, uh, really, really interesting, uh, this biography of of Sir Alan Burns, who um, you know, I'm a fairly well-read guy. You know, I'm something of a you know <laughs> uh, historical dilettante. Uh, but, you know, I read a lot about Britain and, uh, the Empire and England and all that stuff, but I really had never, um, heard much about Alan Burns up until the book. I mean, even, uh, your, um, your article, the, the case for colonialism article, I think he's only mentioned in there, uh, maybe once or twice, uh, there's a couple quotes for him in, in, in the paper. So I really didn't know, uh, much about him at all. So, uh, tell us. Because uh, I'm sure probably most of us, uh, most of the listeners out there, don't know much about him either. Uh, so who, uh, so who was Sir Alan Burns? Yeah, that's a good question, and you're right. He's not he's not well known. Indeed, the reason I wrote the book is because he's essentially you know wasn't known. There were, there's no books on him. I didn't I didn't want to just write the, the the you know millionth book on Lord Lugard or uh, <clears throat> or. <laughs> Or any of the, the the great colonial you know greats that are that are that are well studied, um, and yet he had been compared to Lugard. Lugard was of course the the guy who founded Nigeria essentially and was a kind of god of British colonial administration. Um, but and he was he'd been compared to some of those 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 giants of late colonialism or or 19th century colonialism, but never written about and and. Um, that was one of my motivations for wanting to, in some ways, just resuscitate this life. And I think the, the problem for him was he he was uh, retired, you know, from colonial civil service in, say, say the late 50s, um, did some jobs in the 60s, but was essentially retired, died in 1980, um, having been born in the Caribbean in St. Kitts and begun his colonial civil service job in um, you know, in um, just in, on the eve of World War One, really, 1911, and and then kind of serves in the Caribbean and Africa, and finally at the United Nations after World War Two, um, but was unknown, and I think partly because his his the end of his career coincided with the sort of most most kind of radical attempts to debunk and attack and discredit colonialism, and so by the time you know, a normal scholar would be writing this guy's story, or even a popular writer would be writing this guy's story. There was this kind of imperial cringe setting in in Britain, and this was like a like, do not touch this stuff. Nobody wants to read this. This is out of steps with the time. We want to read about black Afrocentrists and decolonizing Chakrabadis and Mukherjees and uh, the glories of Gandhi and how he humbled the the racist Brits and you know the, the zeitgeist was just totally against this. So basically, his whole story gets packed up in a bunch of boxes and put in an attic in a, a town called Chelmsford, north of um, north of London, which is where his grandson lives and keeps it. And I was just fortunate enough to light upon him and his story, this guy who defended colonialism tooth and nail right to the bitter end, um, and tracked down his family and through their gracious assistance, um, you know, be able to tell his story. And I, I just, it was, uh, one of those projects that just everything seemed to go right. Yeah. Uh, how long, how long did it take the whole process of writing the book? How long did it, uh, did it take you to start to finish? Well, yeah, I was writing it in 2017 when the case for colonialism came out. Like I said, the case for colonialism was in some ways my way to like plan a sort of framework for 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 making the arguments that he made in his many writings and speeches. Of course, he wasn't an academic; he was a he was an official, so he wasn't you know putting things in theoretical terms, but he was certainly living it. He was acting it, he was seeing it, doing it, and and in the latter part of his life, he did write quite a quite a number of books, one of which was called In Defense of Colonies. Mm -hmm. So that was about when I was starting to write in 2017, some trips to obviously London, to um, to Britain, to Ireland, where he has some family, um, 2016, 2017, and then it should have come out in 2020. That's when it got canceled. Um, and then Regnery brought it out in 2021. Did you have to go to St. Kitts or Belize or... <laughs> I wish I could have gone to St. Kitts. There's not much there. Of course, all all of the, the relevant things were his personal papers as well as, of course, the colonial archives in London. Um, 
so it was it was back to jolly old England, which uh, <laughs> but which was great because I I, I developed some very yeah. relationships with his family members and um and you know if, if for no one else I just felt like you know they, there's no reason to be embarrassed that you were related to this man. You should be proud. He is the greatest generation of Brits in my view, yeah. and they they are they are shat upon <laughs> in contemporary Britain uh, unfairly. Yeah. All right. So, uh, what is Burns's early life like in uh, St. Kitts? Uh, yeah, sort of difficult to be a parochial or to have a parochial mind when you're from that part of the world. Right. And this is the know, edge the, of the, the empire, the, basically. The edge of the empire, the, the, the most remote and backward part of the empire, totally mixed populations. Uh, Burns's family, he was this. He was in the second generation of his family living there, so he was. They consider themselves, you know, uh, West Indians, right? Not not British at all. Um, and uh, there's a great picture in the very beginning of the book with him on the job, like one of his first job, where he's like, he's in his desk. Then there's a there's a mixed race uh, clerk beside him. There's a uh, East Indian guard standing in the corner, and then there's a uh, black clerk to his left and i mean this is the caribbean right it's just yeah, a yeah. totally mixed uh and so he grew up in that situation so for him uh, there was it was a very different approach to colon- colonialism was to him you know civilization i mean that's just there was no like us them i mean that was just like this this is how a place like this can be raised up and become uh, successful is through the tutelage and the, and the sovereign control of a, of a liberal advanced state like Britain. Um, so when he gets sent to Nigeria, which is his first major role in Africa, um, you know, he has no problems mixing with the local population. He's wildly popular. He He's always out and about kind of touring and doing things and, and he because of that he's just he's very successful he has a very good reputation um and after his time in nigeria he gets sent to the bahamas briefly as the sort of number two back to africa and then to belize at that time british honduras just on the eve of world war ii as the governor yeah so uh by the time he becomes an adult and enters the colonial service the shift in Great Britain against colonialism has already started to happen. Uh, so the, the empire is going from something that you know all Britons uh, take a measure of pride in. It's uh, slowly becoming something uh, that more and more Britons are going to feel uh, as an em- sort of an embarrassment or. Uh, you know, a, a problem that they need to excise themselves from. Uh, but as you as you mentioned, um, Burns doesn't feel that way because he, you know, is a a, a colonial. So um, uh, so already, even at the start of his career, he's the the sort of the the tide has already turned against him. At, at least he's seeing changes. You know, yeah. sometimes we have to make sure we don't have this kind of um, retrospective bias that, you know, we know how things turned out and therefore we start looking for evidence that that's the way things were going to turn out. Um, before it was really clear at the time that is the way things were going to turn out. I mean, uh, it's true that he sees he's seeing a lot of changes in the kind of global politics of colonialism. And, and it actually, you know, the, fir- the first step time that strikes him really is when he's in the Bahamas and and the issue is the United States Um, because on the one hand uh, it's prohibition era in the United States and the Bahamas is a major bootlegging center (laughs) and so there's tensions with Washington over that Um, but he's also noting you know that the British Empire is being put under greater scrutiny by Americans who of course you know winter there and holiday there and um, and whatnot and so you know, his thought is, I don't think he has a sense that this is dying. Indeed, right. you know, at the, it, when we look back, actually, in the 1930s, 40s and 50s, the most people involved in the British Empire thought it was going from strength to strength, because in terms of the development of these colonies, they were being very successfully managed. The, the growth was amazing. The moves to self-government, the administrative and political shifts were happening just as planned, i.e., you know, educated natives were starting to take the reins. 
That was the plan all along. The plan was to make them self-governing places. Um, and of course, don't forget, you know, after World War One, and then again after World War Two, I mean, the, the British Empire is actually expanding um, because it's it's um, after World War One, it takes over the German colonies along with with other places, and then um, after World War Two is is this period of like preparations for self-government and this is kind of an intensification of colonialism and, th and there's not a sense that this is going to be completed anytime soon i mean most people are talking about like the end of the 20th century when when it'll be time for these places to stand on their own so the assumption at the time is uh the british empire is thriving it's it's robust it's successful it's legitimate it enjoys tremendous support among the colonized um but what Burns does notice in every stop he goes to is how what used to be essentially kind of domestic affairs are becoming kind of globally politically relevant. Um, and the United Nations gets created. Of course, you have the Russian Revolution, which creates a virulently anti-colonial Soviet Union. Um, and then you have these newly developed countries, newly independent countries, in particular India, um, which having benefited from being part of the British Empire, takes it upon itself to rid the world of the British Empire. Um, and these things are then meeting also in the United States, which doesn't want to be outbid by the Soviets in quest for um, allegiance of these new independent states. So the United States needs to walk a fine line between supporting its British ally, but not trying to keep these states out of the Soviet sphere. Keep out of the Soviet sphere, yeah. And of course, there's also a little bit of like remnant, like anti-British, anti-colonialism in the American heartland as well, to use your institute name. <laughs> um, so, so, uh, but I think, so Burns sees this kind of catastrophic, what he sees ultimately is a catastrophic shift in the global politics. And it is true also that domestically, uh, you know, after World War II, Britain is exhausted, Europe is exhausted. I mean, the idea that they're going to spend their taxpayer money on, you know, um, self-training in Ghana seems ridiculous when they don't even have bread, you know, bread to eat and stuff. And, and so I think it's this terrible confluence of the loss of domestic appetite and a toxic global politics, which suddenly and quite unexpectedly brings about an end of European colonialism. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned uh, the Great War a little bit earlier, and Burns actually serves uh, in the Great War. He's in Africa at the time. Um, he uh, fights in uh, the Cameroons, which what they were called then uh, back in the day. And he uh, he notices that the the actions of the native Africans at the time in these colonies uh, belie the idea that the Europeans were holding onto these colonies by by brute force, by force of arms, because um, during this period, uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, the colonies are basically stripped of all most of their available manpower uh, to fight in Western Europe, um, and there's just basically a, a skeleton force of administrators and police and whatnot, uh, you know, administering the colonies, and there are no uh, uprisings or rebellions or any attempts to uh, in these places, in Nigeria, in uh, uh, elsewhere in Africa to uh, make themselves independent while, you know, the <laughs> none of them are saying, hey, you know, now's the time. Uh, if, you, we, if we want to go for it, you know, we might as well do it now when there's nobody here to really stop us. So um, that shows in his mind that uh, the, uh, they are, the African colonials are uh, content uh, with British rule. Uh, over the colonies at this time. Yeah, or they're, or they're smart enough to realize that, you know, compared to the feasible alternatives, it's the it's the best worst option, um, which is which is really what legitimacy is. I mean, it's not doesn't necessarily mean love or joy at colonial rule. It just means a practical decision that 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 the most moral and ethical rulers that uh, they have available to them um, are the colonial governments. And that's most likely to bring about a just and peaceful and flourishing country um, in future. So, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a practical decision and it's, it does indicate um, 
a, a degree of legitimacy of these governments that the anti-colonial ideologues just hate to admit. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to read those those profusions of support for colonial governments uh, that came out during both the world wars. Um, they don't want to hear about the fact that most of these colonial governments were run by the colonials, right? The number of actually white white people in these colonies was was vanishingly small. I mean, the, the, you know, a lot of people in these colonies didn't even know they were colonies because they never came upon a white man in their whole life, right? I mean, the, the only the only rulers they ever encountered were either their traditional rulers who were operating, you know, basically under a kind of contract with the colonial officials, um, or they came upon native officials of the colonial governments, but you know, they just assumed this was some some new finangled form of rule from the capital. Um, and uh, right, these colonies were incredibly um, um, stable in terms of, if you, take, if you look at the area and the population compared to the uh, army and police forces or the number of white officials, I mean, there's just these huge places with this, with this, this very faint imprint of colonial rule. Um, which, you know, often leads to criticism. Well, that that was the problem, right? They didn't, they didn't, had to have an education system and a health system and a government system. But I always say like, okay, you can make that critique, but, but please pay attention to what you're saying. What you're saying is there was not enough colonialism. And I have no problem saying, I agree with you. There was not enough colonialism, but you can't, you can't simultaneously say colonialism was evil and there was not enough colonialism. Um, it's, it's one or the other. And I think the, the, the fact is that, you know, um, post-war, so, so Burns becomes the governor of Ghana, then it was called the Gold Coast during the war, World War II, um, and, um, and you know, he's, he's seen as like the, one of the most progressive governors in the British colonial service. He introduces the first majority black elected legislature um, in, um, in the British Empire and in British Africa, um, and he is, is got... Uh, Ghanaians in his executive council, basically his cabinet, um, and he's he's wildly popular, and he he thinks, look, we're 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 on the right track here. Things are going exactly as they should. Um, but what he doesn't realize is, you know, this the old the old question of like how things are going in the colonies is not really the relevant question anymore. The question is how are things going in New York at the United Nations, and how are things going in the cafes of London and Paris and Berlin where these expatriate natives uh, are studying under European radicals and returning home with this virulent anti-colonial hatred. And, including his brother. Including his brother, who's a leading member of the British Communist Party, who trains Kwame Nkrumah, who goes back and, of course, lays waste to Ghana after independence. Um, and um, so he's kind of, in some ways, he's... Uh, He's, he's out of an earlier era where the assumption was if you rule effectively and you enjoy the broad support of the, of the colonized, then you've done your job. But of course, what happens is colonialism gets seized as a global political issue and it's, it's radicals in coffee houses in London and the Soviet Union and United Nations Afrocentrists who are now calling the shots in the colonies um, without any concern for the well-being of what will happen to these these places if they are suddenly made quote unquote independent yeah and then uh backtracking a little bit back to uh when he was in the bahamas in the 20s which must have been a really fun time to be in the bahamas especially if you were a rum runner or the like uh but it, he notes the amount of voluntary immigration uh from non-colonial states in the caribbean say like haiti uh, uh, to colonial states in the Caribbean, such as uh, the Bahamas. And uh, that for him, uh, this immigration from non-colonial states to colonial states was sort of prima facie evidence of the legitimacy of colonial rule. Yeah, because, I mean, vo voluntary migration is the ultimate act of consent, right? I mean, we, we can see, you can say what you want about about those who are in a place is then colonized, you can make all kinds of debates. But when people literally uproot themselves to colonize themselves by by living under uh, colonial rule, I mean, it is it is de facto consent, right? There's just no sure. no counter argument against that. Um, and what he points out is, yes, I mean, people did everything in their power 
to live under British colonial rule um, in the Caribbean. Um, and that's, of course, if they couldn't move to the American South, which was still under segregation, but was still better than living in independent, independent Haiti um, or some of the, um, the former uh, Spanish colonies, which had become independent as well, like Guatemala, which is right next to Belize and, of course, is a complete basket case during Burns' time um, as governor of Belize in the 1930s. Um, so he, you know, he points these things out and he also <clears throat> notes, of course, that, you know, uh, it's not just kind of migration across borders, but it's also within borders, right? I mean, if you, if you really didn't want to be ruled by the colonial system, you would stay as far away from it as possible. You would right. avoid those more intensely colonized places. But of course, what happens is the opposite, the internal migration, like the external migration is a migration towards the colonial centers. It's towards the places which are more thoroughly governed by the colonial states. Um, and it's away from the peripheries where the colonial governance system is weak. And basically they're still under some form of native tyranny or traditional social system. And people don't like those. People like the colonial system better. That's why they move closer to them. This is also, by the way, the same argument about Native Americans and First Nations in Canada who tended to move closer to the settler colonial states because life was better there, because their lives went better the closer they were um, to those colonial outposts. Um, and for Burns, this kind of migration is a very important indicator of of the consent and legitimacy of colonial rule. Mm -hmm. All right, so um, talking about Belize a bit earlier too, uh, he gets transferred there in 1934 and he's there until the outbreak, basically until the outbreak of World War II in 1939. Uh, you write that these are the most difficult years of his life, his years in Belize, and uh, and this is also at the time, there's a moment when he is in Belize, when he becomes, and you, when he goes from, in your words, uh, Alan Burns, colonial civil servant, to Sir Alan Burns, defender of European colonialism. Uh, why was this time in Belize so hard, and what was this the sort of crystallizing moment in Belize, in Belize. Yeah, it's a good story. It's part of the reason I like writing biographies is because there's always life lessons. You know, sometimes the hardest times in your life are the times that end up being the most important to your future. And uh, in Burns's case, he gets sent to British Honduras, now called Belize, because it's basically a failed colony and that the British are seeing what's happened in some of their other colonies in the Caribbean, such as Guyana, which has got this Marxist communist movement that's causing turmoil and they send him here um and he's disappointed his love is africa he's written the history of nigeria by this point he's he, he loves being in west africa but they send him to this this godforsaken you know basically timber colony which has got its own kind of radical protest movement starting the um the uh, timber industry has collapsed the chicle industry um chiclets the gum industry basically has collapsed and and uh, they send him here uh, and say, you know, can you save this place? Um, and through a tremendous amount of effort and collaboration with locals who share his vision, he does. Uh, and the reason Belize today is one of the most successful alongside Costa Rica countries in Central America owes to Sir Alan Burns. I think there's no doubt about it. He, this was the turning point that saved this place. And it involves a lot of road building. It involves um, a, uh, a more firm law and order approach to the, the labor radicals. It involves um, a, a better approach to urban hygiene and the city of Belize itself, Belize town. Um, and ultimately, um, this is where he stops um, thinking of himself as just you know, administering a particular place to think of himself as representing a powerful force for good in the form of European colonialism. It all comes to a head over a new bridge that opens in, in Belize town um, when, you know, it's basically it's, a, it's, it's the Belize River that, that, that is where that where the capital of Belize sits. And they had always been um, had a ferry service and there was no way to cross except by ferry and Burns managed to get some money out of the UK to build a, a two-lane bridge. Um, and of course, it's there's a lot of sniping and criticism. And he makes a speech at this bridge opening. He says, you know, 
people of Britain don't owe you a living. Um, and you should be glad that you are ruled by a country that can organize to get this bridge built. Because let me tell you, it's a lot better than the ferry you had. And if you would like a better bridge, then you should work hard and develop the means to pay for it yourself. Um, and it's this sudden turning point where he really rhetorically goes on the offensive. And I do think it's a real turning point in his life where he starts to take up the bigger issue of European colonialism as a whole. Right. So, uh, during his, uh, right after Belize, uh, he has this sort of interregnum, uh, between in his colonial service. He, uh, given a job in the colonial office in London, uh, during the first part of uh, World War II, which uh, another interesting story, which I didn't know about. He is, um, he's, instrumental in making the uh the so-called destroyers for bases deal uh between the united states and great britain happen where um basically we traded the united states traded i think 50 old destroyers to britain uh in uh exchange for i think like 99 year leases on a on a, on a certain amount of uh british bases throughout the, the caribbean and throughout the uh, throughout the world uh so how does he get involved in this uh, in this deal, uh, and uh, how does how does he make it happen? Yeah, it's it's kind of a funny story because he's just essentially there for uh, yeah. you know interregnum and um, <clears throat> and suddenly they uh, Churchill and Roosevelt strike this deal. This is basically for Churchill his way of of getting the U.S. involved in the war. Um, Lend lease is coming through Congress at the time, and so they strike this deal for you know bases for destroyers. But the problem is that you know, it's all in the details, and Burns is put in charge of negotiating the details after the kind of framework agreement is announced. And I mean, it's kind of funny that the reason he's chosen is a he's uh, he's Scottish origin because <laughs> the Brits think that the English are still kind of sore over the American Revolution, um, and also because as a person born and raised in the West Indies, they thought correctly he would understand some of the concerns of the West Indian Caribbean colonies, including also um, all the way up to Newfoundland. So he was the perfect person, just right place, right time. Churchill puts him in charge of the negotiations. They're very tortuous. Eventually they get them done. Um, and, uh, you know, Churchill is very grateful to Burns for having pulled this off because Churchill run, recognizes the bigger stakes here. Um, and, you know, again, for Burns, this is, I think he's starting to understand now that the colonialism is really going to depend upon the global politics of colonialism. I mean, you can do as great a job as you want in the colonies, but that's not what matters anymore. What matters is having the support of the United States, keeping the United Nations, which is about to emerge after World War II, um, keeping its sticky fingers out of the out of the colonial affairs and somehow <clears throat> managing to 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 keep the Soviets from kind of picking off these colonies by promising them communist utopia. And um, and I think through this negotiation, you know, on the American side, there is a kind of a education of the American side um, about how British, how the British Empire works. Um, and that it's not just a bunch of oppressive Colonel Blimps running around, but it's basically a very self-governing kind of place, which is why the bases took so long to negotiate. And um, and in that way, it's his transformation from, again, kind of a small town or <clears throat> colonial governor of a particular place to someone with, with the with the much bigger picture in mind. Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, then also during the war, uh, he's named the governor of the Gold Coast Colony, uh, which is now Ghana. And this is sort of the uh, apex, I guess, of his career in the colonial service, really, uh, this governorship of a, a very important colony and uh but uh it's there that uh, the event's going to take place that's going to i believe it's in ghana right the the juju yes. murder that uh they say defines his career uh so tell uh talk about what is well, what was juju uh what was the juju murder and the the subsequent legal wranglings uh from that case uh you know what happened why is this career-defining for him, and then what are the ramifications uh, on the Gold Coast, on Ghana, on this whole juju murder uh, saga? Yeah, so it's, it's in some ways, it's like I've said with, with the, you know, the, the lesson of the Bahamas was, you know, that it's, there's more at stake than just governor governance in the Bahamas. It's about the Americans and how they see the Bahamas. In the Belize case, again, it's, it's kind of like there's more at stake than just a bridge here. This is about, like, 
what we see colonialism as responsible for and not. And then in, in the case of the Gold Coast, when he's the governor of the Gold Coast, um, this murder takes place. Uh, it's called a ritual murder. It's Juju is basically, you know, West African uh, voodoo. Um, and it's the kind of what we, you know, think of some of those old Roger Moore, James Bond. I forget which one were there. There's all sorts of uh, voodoo and Juju curses everywhere. Um, you know, basically it's, it's a ritual murder of a, of a minor priest in a tribe, which is going through a succession from one king to the next. And one of the traditions was, you know, somebody gets murdered and their blood gets used to wipe clean the stool of authority to um, usher in the new king. And that was just the way things were done there. And, um, but this is now 1944 you know, and uh, the British are less and less tolerant of these cultural traditions, as are the Africans, by the way, less and less tolerant of these cultural traditions. And so uh, six men in this tribe were arrested for the murder and Burns is determined to see the prosecution through to the gallows. But, you know, again, what's happening is this kind of global politics is intruding and suddenly um, there's an outcry that um, the British are, you know, hanging loyal Africans. Um, and what business do they have hanging Africans for cultural practices? I mean, after all, there was witchcraft in medieval England. So we're all the same. And and um, and cultural this is relativism. cultural relativism is sneaking in a kind of. Uh, a cultural disdain even, you know, well, that's just what blacks do. They, they're engaged in barbaric practices. You know, how dare we challenge them over that? Um, and Burns is raked over the coals in the British press for this. Uh, even Churchill in his dotage kind of comes in and says, what's Burns doing, you know, in the parliament? And, and he sees it through to the end. Um, one of them dies in prison, com commutes the sentences of two. I think three of them are eventually hung. Um, but it really forces him to go on the offensive rhetorically about making the case for colonialism and why it's necessary for Britain to do what it does and why it has the support of the natives, right? That's the, he's really having to push that, like, this is what is desired locally. Don't talk to these, you know, trial lawyers in London who claim to be the conscience of the black Africa, right? They're not. They're, they're a bunch of uh, intellectual elites, and we don't want to hand over to these sort of people. So... Um, so this event, I think, in addition to kind of further reinforcing his own kind of uh, rhetorical arguments in favor of the empire, draws him to the notice of the people in London who are looking for someone to go and defend British colonialism at the United Nations. And again, he's just the right person in the right place. Yeah. So uh, like 1947, he's uh, I don't know if transfer is the word, but uh, he takes up a role at the United Nations. Uh, what uh, other than <laughs> uh, defending the empire and defending Great Britain? What what is his uh, title there? What is his actual role? So he's he's the um, the British member on the United Nations Trusteeship Council. So <clears throat> the trusteeships, of course, are the former mandates which um, the European powers uh, took uh, when they took the German and uh, later Italian. Um, case of Somalia, Italian colonies, um, instead of making them colonies, the deal was uh, that they would become mandates of League of Nations, which after World War II became trusteeships of the United Nations. And so they were kind of like UN-administered or UN-overseen colonies, but, but being practically administered as colonies. Um, the British and the French and the Belgians basically just treated them like colonies. But there was this additional requirement to kind of report on them and be accountable to the UN. So there's a council set up for that purpose at the UN. So his his narrow title is the British representative to the UN trusteeship council. But of course, again, you know, there's the there's the there's the black letter reality and there's the real reality. The reality is that the trusteeship council became the place where colonialism itself was debated. And um, and it, at a certain point, that just became not just a, a de facto, but de jure, because there was a new committee created to explicitly debate colonial affairs. And of course, the membership on that committee was the same as the trusteeship committee. So Burns was essentially the voice representing the British Empire at the United Nations for the, um, you know, eight critical years 1947 to, let's say, 55, 56, when the question of 
how quickly these global forces are going to force decolonization is debated. And he he tries to slow down the pace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's also this at the time, uh, uh, this criteria used to distinguish colonialism from non-colonialism or colonial power from a non-colonial power to the, the uh, quote unquote, the saltwater criteria, uh, which basically if... <laughs> Uh, if you had uh, colonies over a length of, uh, you know, across an ocean or something like that, or uh, you were considered a colonial power, but if you were a very large uh, uh, power on the Eurasian landmass, say like uh, the Soviet Union, uh, who had uh, subject peoples <laughs> uh, all over uh, Central Europe and uh, Eastern Europe and, and Central Asia, you were not considered a solely uh, a uh, colonial power so uh, talk a little about uh, that uh, criteria and uh, or that saltwater uh, hypocritical criteria and uh, how that's pointed out by Burns and uh, I believe the Belgians (laughs) yeah yeah well there's so there's there's of course just a basic hypocrisy in claiming that right that that uh, controlling people who you said you're separated from by saltwater makes you a colonialist and controlling people who you're separated from by landmass is not colonialism. I mean, there's just this, it's arbitrary. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, so, so one of the, one of the questions at the United Nations was, <clears throat> okay, well, either we consider all countries which have, um, uh, governance responsibilities outside of their traditional borders as colonial powers, um, in which case the Soviet Union would have to be considered a colonial power, um, in which case uh, Pakistan would have to be considered a colonial power because of, of East Pakistan. Um, in- India, of course, had invaded Goa by this point, just explicit violation of international law and outright invasion of a f- of foreign territory. Um, and uh, you know, how far back do you want to go? China and the Qing dynasty. And, and the United States uh, even. Yeah. And, and, yeah, well, that's, you know, and the United States, I mean, depending on like, you know, whether you consider that, that this is a sovereign nation that you rule or not. Um, and, and so one view is, look, the, the French view, you might say, is, you know, look, these are not colonies. This is part of France, right? And France had a very inter- integrative approach to its colonies. It, it even had representatives from its colonies in the in the National Assembly. Um, I mean, the French view was like, this is all France. Um, and then the opposite view was, I mean, that's the most integrative view. The most disintegrative view was actually the Belgians who said, no, you know, all, all modern nation states are basically colonial. Um, and in fact, we're we ourselves a colony of, of the Flemish, and the French uh, here in Belgium, and um, perhaps we should be sending reports to the United Nations on our colonial affairs between the Flemish and uh, and the French, uh, and we'd be happy to do that. <laughs> you know, I mean, this sort of their argument was this kind of radically disintegrative approach. Um, and you know, the British were were sort of in between these two approaches. You know, they didn't they didn't want to be permanently in charge of of Ghana or any of these colonies. So they didn't take the French view that this was always going to be part of France, but they also didn't view, um, you know, their own country as a colonial conquest state. They viewed it as a, as a historically coherent nation. Um, and Burns was just trying to sort of point out that, you know, that the, 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 the hypocrites at the United Nations, in particular, uh, the Soviets in terms of colonial holdings, um, you know, needed to decide uh, one way or other. They couldn't, um, you know, call Britain a colonial power and they call themselves an integrated power. Mm-hmm. Um, and also pointing out just the hypocrisy of some of the newly emerging uh, independent countries, of which India ranks far and above anyone else. Um, and India's kind of post-colonial tick of seeing itself as the moral conscience of the world. And... Um, Burns pointing out that most of the criticisms that were made about British colonialism in India had continued under independence or gotten worse. And um, and trying to sort of rhetorically engage in these battles, the main point of this was to slow the rush to independence, which was not turning out very well in places like Somalia, which had uh, been uh, kind of early test cases for how well independence would go in some of these countries. Yeah, so um, at the start, when the UN uh, really gets going, it uh, sees its job as to sort of 
adequately prepare colonies for independence uh, at some future date. But uh, basically within a decade, by 1956, I believe that it's the de facto UN policy at that point is basically immediate decolonization everywhere. Uh, you know, every colonial, uh, <laughs> every colonial state, every colonial empire immediately needs to become independent. Uh, but uh, you, you write that uh, uh, this uh, this view and this this uh, failure to uh, adequately prepare these colonies for independence, in your words, is uh, uh, arguably a crime against humanity uh, that the body continues to celebrate. Can you talk a little about why uh, why you say so? Yeah, I think that's that's right. I mean, um, uh, it, it's one thing to celebrate. You know, the aim of decolonization, but of course you would say, well, yes, because the British themselves had been talking about decolonization since the middle of the 19th century. I mean, I mean, they had their examples of, of Canada, of course, which had moved towards self-government in the 1830s. And then finally, with the British North America Act in 1868, the, the West India and the Caribbean colonies where Burns was raised, you know, were even more uh established in their self-governance traditions. Of course, that's what made them such a pain in the neck to deal with when the basis for destroyers deal was being negotiated because these places were so autonomous, right? They had elected legislatures, elected cabinets, elected governors. Um, so, so you know, uh, decolonization was always baked into the cake with colonization, you know, unless you were France where you wanted to integrate. But even then the French were going to, these places were going to be fully represented in the British, in, in the French national legislature. So, certainly kind of democratization and self-government were always central to the colonial agenda. And um, so along comes the United Nations, uh, which uh, on the one hand is supportive of that agenda. Okay, well, it's not their agenda, but, but suddenly feels itself to be better informed about how and when that should take place than the colonial rulers themselves. Now, this is what really bothers Burns because, of course, these people... Uh, including the so-called representatives of the of the countries themselves, you know, often have have not grown up in those countries, and if they have, they've only spent time in the capital. I mean, the colonial officials know much more about these countries than the so-called nationalist leaders, who often have very little support, except they're very fluent and their rhetoric is good, and they know how to sweet talk, you know, gullible journalists and Soviets and American diplomats into thinking that they're kind of the George Washington of wherever. Mm -hmm. And Burns is saying, this is not going to end well. Um, we need to slow this down. And there is a kind of moment in 56, 57 when, when the British start to play hardball with this process. And, um, uh, you know, essentially he loses. Obviously, we know what happens. By 1960, the UN declares that colonialism is a threat to world peace, <laughs> which ends up being one of the most historically ironic statements in history because it was actually decolonization which caused this massive spike in civil and regional wars in Africa for essentially the next 30 years. So it doesn't really slow down until the late 80s. Um, and I do think that that was a crime against humanity. The United Nations decolonization machine, which is a term used by Jeffrey Herbst, a professor, former professor of Princeton, um, you know, this decolonization machine caused millions upon millions of deaths, um, unnecessary deaths, and there's no accountability for it. It's still celebrated as some great achievement of, of social justice, but it was anything but. Yeah, so uh, when it, in Ghana and Nigeria specifically, what, it, what ends up happening in those countries after independence, or those colonies after independence? And, uh, you know, you write Burns, or it's the, what, the situation that comes about in Nigeria uh, after independence is most unbearable to him. It's, uh, it's something he takes, uh, uh, not personally, but it it, it, it saddens him greatly. And it troubles yeah, well, him. Nigeria, of course, experiences the Biafra War um, in 1961 to 63. This is like literally a year after independence. The place is in a civil war that kills between one and three million people. Now, the Biafra War is a kind of wake-up call in the West, and um, <clears throat> those pictures of... of starving children on the streets of Nigeria are, you know, in Time magazine, there is a, there's this kind of bucket of cold water. I mean, if, if the horrors of partition had not been enough, uh, the Biafra war was the wake up call that this, this is becoming absolute bloodshed. Um, and, um, you know, eventually 
the Biafra war ends and there's a kind of peace of sorts set up. But of course, Nigeria falls into one military dictatorship after another uh, for the next 30 years. And it's it's grotesque. And, and that hurts Burns because he's not only a kind of former governor there, has many friends, but he He's written essentially the standard history of the country um, that remains the standard history of Nigeria till well into the 70s. Ghana, of course, uh, is uh, elects Kwame Nkrumah as its first independence president, and Kwame Nkrumah does exactly what Kwame Nkrumah advertised he would do. He nationalizes the cocoa industry, which causes the industry to collapse. He cozies up to Russia, which uh, helps him to develop um, plans for um, centralized economy and one-party rule. And uh, Ghana goes into a tailspin, which is quite amazing because it was the most prosperous and cosmopolitan West African country. And um, after Nkrumah, you get Jerry Rawlings, uh, military rule until, again, the late 80s, early 90s, when Africa starts climbing out of this mess. Um, But by then, the damage is done, and it's not clear today that the damage done by anti-colonial movements and decolonization processes can ever be undone. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I'm glad you brought up his history of Nigeria again, uh, because I I was just about to ask you about that or talk to you about that, Uh, because he's not just a a, a colonial administrator. He's also a, a fairly prolific writer i mean for a guy who's got other things to be you know important things to be doing uh he ends up writing a lot of uh a lot of different books and you mentioned how that that history of nigeria is uh uh pretty much the uh the standard history of that country for you know a number of decades uh but at the end of his uh career as colonial service um he writes a couple books uh that i think are uh will be nice to hear about a little bit uh, his memoirs and then uh the book another book you mentioned a bit earlier uh which is uh, in defense of colonies which came out in like 1957 i believe his memoirs I, I believe he wrote his memoirs uh while he was still uh a governor of ghana but uh, he didn't publish them until much later just because it was <laughs> a little uh uh the book was a little impolitic but uh right uh, but tell us about a little bit about those two books and um, uh, you know, how they sort of set Burns's worldview uh, or, uh, or uh, uh, showcased his worldview, uh, uh, you know, to a, a very broad audience. Yeah, I think I think his memoirs, uh, you know, of course they're kind of dull and dry, but um, but it's hard not to like the person, right? I mean, I think this is what people usually say: is like, oh, I may not agree with him, but he's obviously a very likable and well liked person um and he has a certain he has the classic dry british humor um he's quite funny when he writes about the various um things that happen in the colonies you know and getting lifted out of the boat when he arrives in his big wicker chair and being loaded down into a surf boat which then skims across the surf because there's no pier at the time and um i mean just the some of the comedy of colonial rule is there and, and he's very good on that and then In Defense of Colonies is really, you know, what he writes after he retires from the UN. And it, it can't be published until he's retired because he says they'll fire me. If I publish it was, well, it's there. Um, and it's it's a little more angry uh, because because he has basically seen his life's work besmirched at the United Nations uh, by these people who claim to be the conscience of the world, such as the Indians or, you know, the uh, liberators of humanity, which is what the Soviets claim themselves to be. And he knows it's a fraud. He knows this entire institution the united nations is a fraud when it comes to matters to do with the third world which is most of the world and uh and he's bitter and he's angry about it um he does actually write a final manuscript that never gets published um comparing colonial rule comparing these countries before and after colonial rule and in some ways predicting the rise of kind of humanitarian aid and intervention um as these situations get bad um, we did manage to get that published digitally through the Cambridge University Library, which it, where it can now be found. Um, but the fact that he couldn't find a publisher for that speaks precisely to the shift in zeitgeist that sort of overcame the world by the time he died in 1980. Yeah, so he wrote uh, Colonialism Before and After. That was 1972, 73, somewhere around there, I believe. Uh, but yeah, he goes on, uh, even in retirement, uh, defending... Uh, defending the British Empire un- until his death in, in 1980. 
Yeah, and you know, he's called. He's kind of a <clears throat> called in as a sort of a, a problem solver when the colonial office uh, needs someone. He goes to Fiji and does a major report on the problems of uh, basically Fijian intransigence to majority rule. Um, he, um, funnily enough, he goes to the Bahamas to sort out some issues of civil service salary pay because he himself had. Uh, been given a big salary rise in, in the Bahamas. Um, he tries to hold the Commonwealth together. He tries to hold this West Indian Federation together, which never, never happens. Um, but mainly, he's he's uh, he's trying to make the case right to the end. I mean, the BBC sends an interview to do an oral history with him in 1978, uh, which I managed to listen to on an archive tape. Um, and you know, he's just he's making this case. But it's the 70s, and those views are very unpopular in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, uh, we've gone a little long already. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, but there's just lots of stuff to cover. Uh, but uh, so I guess the final question uh, I'll have for you is, uh, you know, one I ask pretty much everybody that comes on the podcast. And uh, that's uh, what would you like the audience to get out of this book? Uh, or what's the the one thing you'd want them to take away from reading it? I think it's important to understand colonialism for what it actually was rather than what the critics say it was. And I think when you read Burns and you read about his stories and the people who in the colonies revered him, uh, were very sad when he left, supported him, um, even loved him. Um, you know, we realize that this was an incredibly productive and fruitful encounter that need not have been terminated as quickly as it was. And I guess part of the reason I got in trouble for my argument in the case for colonialism was saying maybe there's some ways to, to bring colonialism back. And I, and I do think not in its form that it was, but certainly in terms of systems of governance and shared sovereignty and even maybe some little, you know, little microeconomic zones. Um, I do think that there's a that there's an argument and a, and a good case for saying we, we still have lessons to learn for how you can rescue failed states through some form of external rule. Right. Okay, great. Well, uh, before we go, is there any anything else uh, you want to plug? Any appearances or anything? Or the, or the next, upcoming book besides next this book? Next book, yeah. Next book uh, due out uh, later this year called In Defense of German Colonialism, which, uh, which will be a good one. And the subtitle is And How Its Critics Empowered Nazis, Communists, and the Enemies of the West. Yeah, so um, you just didn't have enough controversy the first time around, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, you know, I have to go. I have to go jackboot around my backyard after this. You know? but, um, yeah, it's. Uh, I, I do think it's again. It's. It's. A, it's an interesting book because it's just an untold story, and I think it's yeah. about setting history straight. And that was also my aim with Burns. All right, great. Well, looking forward to that one, and uh, this one we were just discussing. Again, is the last imperialist, uh, Sir Alan Burns. Is, Sir Alan Burns' epic defense of the British Empire. Uh, very, very interesting book. Like I said, I knew next to nothing uh, about Burns um, you know, before I read the book and uh, was really intrigued by his, uh, his role in the, in the twilight of the British Empire uh, and his... Uh, uh, pugnacious defense of the British Empire during this period, and it's a very, very interesting book. Highly recommend it uh, for everybody out there. Go out and get yourself a copy, and uh, make sure you give it a read. And again, uh, Dr. Gilly, uh, thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast to uh, discuss the book with me and talk a little bit about uh, Alan Burns. I uh, appreciate it. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Oh, uh, no problem. And uh, again, if you like this podcast, uh, please leave us a five-star review and share with your friends. And uh, if you have books you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, uh, you can reach me at uh, tbenson at heartland.org. That's T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And uh, we do have our, would be remiss if I didn't bring this up, we do have our Twitter account for the uh, for the podcast. You can reach out to us there. You know, uh, Give us a follow. Send us a DM if you need any information or have any questions, anything like that. Uh, you can reach us at uh, illbooks. That's uh, at I-L-L books. So make sure you check us out. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. So uh, thank you very much for listening, everybody. We'll see you guys next time. Take care. Hi, Mom. Hi, Robbie. Love you both. Bye-bye. <laughs>